Welcome to class number 20, the third class on The Hobbit. We will start with Mirkwood today, move on to the fight with the spiders, and then look back over some of the amazing luck experienced by Bilbo and his friends in the story so far. Okay. Um, we had gotten as far as Mirkwood, or just about to Mirkwood. Um, one thing I want to just notice before we come to Bilbo and the spiders, um, notice the overall atmosphere of Mirkwood. Um, it's not quite, I think, perhaps what, what we seem to be led to expect. That is what, what, what Bilbo appears to expect. Uh, remember, one of the introductions that we get to Mirkwood is Bjorn saying, oh man, like Mirkwood, be careful. Like the creatures in there are dark and savage. And it's like, this is Bjorn speaking, you know, saying, you know, be concerned. So one might expect... You know, they make a big deal about crossing into Mirkwood and how dangerous it is, how it's, it's more dangerous than the Misty Mountains, which they've already passed through. And so we might perhaps logically expect sort of a mere escalation uh, in the danger that they've been experiencing. You know, those are the Goblin Mountains, and that was pretty bad. But now this is even worse. But what we find is not an amplification of the kind of danger they've been in, but a completely different kind of danger. A completely different kind of situation. They never get attacked. They're set on by the spiders only after they leave the path. It seems relatively clear that had they stayed on the path, they would never have been attacked by anything. And yet nobody talks about Mirkwood like, oh yeah, Mirkwood's no big deal. As long as you bring plenty of food and stay on the path, you're good. It's no, it's, it's, you know, it's no problem. Um, that's never how anybody talks about Mirkwood. So as you say, it seems to be a different kind of danger. What do you notice about it? What's... What is sort of characteristic of Mirkwood as they see it, especially this, what makes it so dangerous? Josh? I guess it's sort of like the enchantment that's placed upon it and how they're constantly not battling with like large entities, but kind of themselves and their own self-discipline, like getting into the, the black water or kind of um, resisting the urge to jump into the camp yeah, yeah, good. Now, I agree. I mean, one, one thing that's very noticeable, Mirkwood is a magical place where we haven't seen, I mean, Rivendell, there appears to be magic involved there, but of course elves live there, so that's no surprise. But nowhere else have we seen, I mean, the mountains aren't particularly magical. You don't worry about that. But yeah, in Mirkwood, now we're worried about enchanted streams, right, that will put you into a magical sleep if you drink from it or swim in it. Um, Mirkwood is more eerie than physically dangerous, right? What do they hear in Mirkwood? A couple references to this. Before they leave the path. Remember, right as they're crossing the stream, what happens? Hunting that's going on, I guess. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah, they, 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 their encounter with the deer, the stag first, and then, and then the hind with the fawns. Um, it's, and they hear the sound of a great hunt off to the distance. They never see any of the hunters. They never find out any more about it. We'll never learn any particular backstory behind that. Um, the sound of the hunt off in the distance. At one place, they can hear singing. And although the singing sounds 
Sounds nice. They hurry past it and are really freaked out. Yeah. Um, I just thought when I like reading about Merkwood, it seemed almost like he's an affective disorder or something. It's just like <laughs> so dark and it's like the lack of things is is more than like the things that are actually there and it's kind of like dealing with your own um, I guess just experience of what it feels like to be there. Yeah. Knowing that there are things that you can't see and it's just dark and you know that you're in this place that you don't want to be in. Yeah. And that you're being threatened even if you're not being attacked. Like the eyes. I mean, it's not that there aren't any monsters in Merkwood. I mean, you make a fire at night and you will be surrounded uh, by these creatures, some of whom have obviously enormous monstrous eyes. They won't, you know, touch you or get near to you if you can handle just sort of sitting there being watched by these. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's more, it is more psychological. Um, can you can you handle it? And the darkness, the absence of things. They long for light. They long for breeze. They end up longing for food and water, of course. Um, even the dwarves. Even the dwarves who like the dark. Remember, they, they were like, you know, in chapter one, oh, don't turn on the lights. We, we prefer the darkness. They're freaked out by this darkness. Um, there is a kind of atmosphere of deprivation about Mirkwood, which is very hard for them to handle. Um, and I think that there are a couple different things that we can see here. Mirkwood, there are two things that are associated with Mirkwood. That is, we know of two, two different populations in Mirkwood. Who lives in Mirkwood? Not, not counting the spiders. Who lives in Mirkwood that we know of? The wood elves are the ones that we meet. So we've got the wood elves, and who else? The necromancer. Yeah, not that part of Mirkwood, of course. They've quite on purpose gone to a different part of Mirkwood than the one near his tower, but the necromancer lives there. Um, So we know Mirkwood to be both a center of very active evil. The necromancer is the one great sort of looming evil figure uh, that this book talks about. Of course, we have evil characters, Smaug being the biggest one, but um, the necromancer is the closest we get to a, a, you know, the big bad guy behind the scenes. So that in some ways, it's there for, you know, the Mirkwood is like the center of the evil that we see, but it's also where the Wood Elves live. And the Wood Elves are, have their flaws, but remain good people, capital G, capital P, right? Um, Did you like the little two-sentence juvenile language uh, synopsis of the the Silmarillion that that we get in that section? Um, And when he talks about the the three families of elves going to fairy in the West and some of them returning to the wide world, um, from this description, who are the wood elves? Which group from the Silmarillion do they belong to? Moraquendi. They are Moraquendi because they never went to the light of fairy in the in the West. Specifically, which subgroup? They're Sindarin elves, they, like the the people that uh, that uh, um, um, Thingol. 
I hate it when that happens. Uh, that Thingol was ruling. Now, they're, they're probably Nandor as well, um, who, the ones who stayed over, over uh, to, the, to the east of the Misty Mountains and didn't cross over, and then the few of them crossed over to Polarion, the Green Elves. You remember them. Um, so there's some, some, some Sindar and some Nandor over there, but they are more acquainted. These are not Noldor. These are low elves compared to the high elves. Um, the high elves, we met them in Rivendell. Uh, these are these are a different kind. What else do we learn about them? What are they like? The wood elves. Yeah, uh, don't do talk about their desire for treasure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the elven king really wants treasure. He loves treasure. He has a weakness for treasure. We're told. Um, if he had a weakness, it was for treasure. And you'll notice. It's not a very, even his desire for treasure is not a very pure desire for treasure. It's not just, oh, I love beautiful things and, the, and, 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 and I have a weakness for excellent craftsmanship. Why does he want more treasure? Because he does not yet have as much treasure as other elf lords from the elder days had. You know, it's like the elven king in Mirkwood is like trying to keep up, well... I guess they wouldn't be the Joneses because they're elves, but I don't know who exactly trying to keep up with. His hall, you may have noticed, looks an awful lot like Menegroth in Doriath. That is, his palace and fortress is a system of caves in the middle of a great forest um, with a river right next to it. I mean, it looks almost explicitly modeled after Doriath. We, we have like a little mini reflection of Doriath. We don't get a Melian character, but but it's it's like that. So he I don't know, he's kind of Thingol's his hero, you know, he wants to be he wants to be like Thingol. And this is of course particularly appropriate. Remember we are recalled to the dwarf elf friction which happened in Doriath uh, between Thingol and the dwarven craftsmen and the, the war that came from that. Um, so those parallels are pretty explicit. Remember, in 1937, those parallels were lost on 100% of the people who read this book because the story uh, of, of Doriath was not published until after Tolkien's death. Um, but when you read the Silmarillion, you can see uh, how these wood elves are echoes. You know, their whole, their, their whole land here is an echo of the, previous, of the previous realm. This leads me back to the quality of... Mirkwood, when they enter into it. Again, there are two groups of people, roughly, who live in Mirkwood, the Wood Elves and the Necromancer. And we can see, I think, both of their influence. When you cross into Mirkwood, you're crossing a boundary. Um, And things are different inside of Mirkwood. Things are eerie. Things are magical. It is like crossing into fairy. It is like a human being wandering into fairy, and now it's, it's a little bit like Smith. Of Wooten Major is not exactly the same. It's a little more mundane. It's less, it's not, you know, their experience is certainly not one of amazing glory, right, which makes our, our world pale in comparison. But it's a magical realm that they enter into. But the necromancer lives there too. It is a corrupted magical realm. It is a perverted magical realm. It is dark. Everything is dark and black in Mirkwood. Even the butterflies are black. Right? And the squirrels are black. Everything. Um, 
I love the synopsis that Pippin will give in the two towers. When Pippin and Merry get to the forest of Fangorn, they're going to be remembering this. Pippin will recall the stories that Bilbo used to tell about Mirkwood and point out to Merry that this forest that they're in doesn't sound much like Bilbo described Mirkwood. And in his sort of his little synopsis of Bilbo's description of Mirkwood, he says, that was all dark and black and the home of dark black things. That's a perfect description of Mirkwood. It is like dark. Everything about it is dark and black. Um, we can see both of those elements at work when they come in. The prohibitions, the black stream, which you can't step into or something will happen to you. And also notice what happens. Bomber does go in the stream. And what happens to him? Falls asleep. He falls asleep. And while asleep, he has, very dreams. has happy dreams. He's like taken to an elvish place, right? And has dreams of the feasting of the elves. Dreams which come true, almost exactly. He has true dreams of, <clears throat> of the true fairy. And then, when they find the elves, finally, the third time, when Thorin steps into the circle, Bomber is sort of taken by this elvish enchantment in his dreams, Thorin gets taken by the elves physically. Right. And the experience for him quickly ceases to be magical uh, <laughs> as he is hauled in and thrown into prison. But, um, uh, but again, there is much that is fairy with a capital F like about Mirkwood, but it's, not, but it's clearly not right. It's clearly corrupted. And the spiders are the most sort of the, 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 the plainest embodiment of the evil influence on the forest that we get. Their home, when Bilbo finds their colony, where they have the dwarves, uh, does anyone remember the description of the colony? What does he see when he sees it? Yes, it's like a patch of night that's never been cleared away. And we should be remembering... Ungoliant, yeah, whose webs were darkness, spun out of light, right? Her webs were light taken, you know, digested and perverted into this positive darkness, this unlight, right? Now, these are, these are just spiders. Uh, later on, um, Tolkien will say that these, the spiders of Mirkwood are actually descendants, distant descendants of Ungoliant herself, but, um, but we should be remembering uh, Ungoliant there. They are... They are the darkest of the dark things that we see. And you, will, you may remember when he's describing the elves and the elven king, Tolkien, you know, the narrator notes that the, the spiders are the only living creatures upon which the elves have no mercy. Even goblins they get along with comparatively well. Within, with the, they, they hate goblins. Uh, but, but the spiders are even worse than goblins for them. Um, and so there you can see this is a f- Mirkwood. Mirkwood is at war within itself. I mean, th- th- these two things are not don't peacefully uh, cohabitate in Mirkwood. Um, that is the darkness and the magic, the elven quality of the woods. <laughs> One moment which gets a lot funnier. Uh, after you read the Silmarillion, what do the elves do when 
Bilbo and the dwarves approach them in the forest? They blow up the fires and then they do. They run away. Why? Because they've learned their lesson. When you are at a feast, when you are all gathered together <laughs> having a festival at night and somebody comes creeping in, you run. <laughs> Notice also they escape in the barrels at a time of festival too. It's the great autumn feast upstairs and all the elves are gathering and wow, everyone is distracted upstairs. Bilbo's around downstairs stealing keys and unlocking their cells and, and stuffing them in barrels. Right? Everything happens at time of festival. And it looks like the elves of Mirkwood have begun to learn that lesson. And they're a little more cautious at times of festival uh, than, they, than they used to be. Um, I always find that hilarious when I come to the <laughs> Hobbit after the Silmarillion. But um, <clears throat> the, the encounter with the spiders. When Bilbo wakes up, you know, they all get scattered after the third time. Uh, Thorin is taken and the rest are scattered. And Bilbo just drops asleep by himself in the darkness in the middle of the woods and wakes up to find the giant spider. What's the verb? I'm failing for a verb here. Wrapping isn't right. Spinning. Anyway. Entwining, yeah, that's better. Entwining is my favorite so far. Anyway, he wakes up and the spider is doing this to him. That was the maximally lame way I could think of saying that. Uh, what happens? This is an important moment, right? How do we know this is an important moment? Because he thinks about eggs and bacon. <laughs> <laughs> there he is thinking about eggs and bacon. Yeah, that's, that's, he always does that at times of stress. Yeah. Because he's all by himself. Yeah. This is, if anything, one up from the previous one. Right? This is even worse than the situation he found himself in before. Once again, he wakes up in darkness, but this time he's actually being attacked by a giant spider. Right? And his situation is even more, he seems even more hopeless than it was. Uh, in the Misty Mountains. There, at least, he was in a tunnel that he could follow, right? Remember when he wakes up and he's like, hmm, what should I do? Well, I guess go forward, as that's the only thing to do. Here, there isn't anything to do, obviously. Right? I mean, he is completely lost in the forest without his companions and no idea how to possibly find them, and is already, we must remember, on the brink of starvation, right? I mean, this is why they are completely desperate for food and water at this point. Um, and, again, he is actively under attack by a monstrous creature that also is significant. But once again, he perseveres. This is another turning point. And he thinks about this in retrospect. When, the, when he's killed the spider and it's lying dead, it, it worked a great wonder of change in him. He thinks about, and he begins to feel like something, he is really something of a bold adventure. It makes him feel fierce for the first time. Remember, previously, he had began to think in practical terms about being conceived as fierce when he thought about his sword. But now, this is the first time, think about it, this is the first time he's ever used that sword. He threatened Gollum with it, but he's never used it before. He forgets about it. He's beating off the spider with his hands. And he's like, oh, wait, I have a sword. And he stabs it with it. Right? And then, the certain mark, the certain, certain Tolkien mark that something important has just happened, 
He names the sword, right? He gives it a name. Sting. Um, And this is an important name for him. What is the significance of that name? Of naming his sword Sting? Um, I think it kind of alludes to his hobbit nature because Bilbo is still a hobbit even though he did kill this, this spider. He's not going to be like, he's not going to be a you know, crusher. Right. What? Think of the names of the swords, right? Foe hammer. No, no. He's not going to call his sword foe hammer or anything like that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Goblin cleaver. That's the name of the other one, right? No, no, no. Nothing like that. Yeah. Yes, and small, <laughs> right? Take that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> good, good. And, and of course, in context, it's particularly relevant. He's fighting spiders, right? Um, and we can see this both, both, both literally and metaphorically. He is, he's like a little fly who's caught in the spider's web, both literally in the web, in the literal web of that spider he's just killed, but also sort of more metaphorically in Mirkwood itself. And, but now he is not just a helpless little fly. Now he, he sees himself differently. Uh, he is a stinging fly now. He, he's still a fly. That is, you know, he, he, he embraces that identity, um, which we can see him doing explicitly in his songs, right? Um, you know, when he sings his songs, you know, here am I, naughty little fly, he, he describes himself, right? Um, you are fat and lazy. He's making fun of the spiders. But, but he calls himself the stinging fly. That, that's one of the descriptors when he is talking to the dragon later on. One of the things he will call himself is the stinging fly. Um, so it's very interesting because we can see the kind of change to his own self-concept. But as Marta points out, it's not like it's... And now I am... Remember what he wasn't. When Gandalf was looking for somebody to help the dwarves, they were hoping for a warrior or maybe even a hero, but they're just not to be found. So they get a burglar instead, right? It's not like he imagines, now I am a hero, now I am a warrior. No, no, he's still, still a fly, but he's a stinging fly now. Uh, and so that, 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 that real change in his self-concept, and, and he is different, really different. Uh, this, the, to imagine, to go back to chapter one and remember Bilbo writhing on the floor, yelling, struck by lightning, struck by lightning, when Thorin is merely talking about the possibility that some of them might die, right? And then to imagine that hobbit now, uh, you know, my favorite moment is the scene when he's set the dwarves free, most of them, and the rest of them, but, but Bomber has rolled off onto the ground, and the spiders are starting to come back, and he's standing on the, the end of the bow while the dwarves are freeing the other dwarves, and he's single-handedly fighting the spiders back as they're coming under the branch, and then he sees them down by Bomber, and he's like, follow me, and he leaps down into the middle of the pile of spiders and fights them all off. I remember the line in chapter two uh, when... Bilbo is very self-conscious about his ill-fitting dwarf hood that he's wearing and everything, and he imagines to him, and, and the narrator says, what old Bungo would have thought had he seen him? I don't like to think, right? Well, imagine what old Bungo would think now if he could see Bilbo doing this. I mean, the, the change that has happened is really remarkable. Uh, you know, that now we have, you know, swashbuckling Bilbo. It's crazy to think about compared to, uh, compared to how he was. But... 
Has his outlook changed? What is he like when he's in, when he becomes like the resident burglar in the Elven King's Hall? Going around for invisible for weeks on end, stealing for his food every meal every day. How does he feel about that? How does he think? I mean, he has, this, this seems to be this moment when he kills the spider, saves the dwarf single-handedly, becomes you know, the leader of their expedition. Now they're all in prison, relying on Bilbo, trusting that Bilbo will think of some clever plan to get them out, which he does eventually. Um, you know, he's, he's undergone this huge transformation. What is his outlook like? Is he like, now, I, I remember back in the Trolls, uh, that whole thing starts because he's trying to live up to the professional expectations of the dwarves. Right? He realizes, you know, he's looking in the clearing and he sees the trolls. And, you know, he, right, he, even he, even sheltered Bilbo, realizes that these are trolls. And he realizes, well, I should probably sneak back and tell them, okay, let's get the heck out of here, there are trolls. Um, but he doesn't. Instead, he tries to pick Bill's pocket because he feels the weight of their expectations. Well, I'm, I'm a professional burglar now. I have to live up to Gandalf's recommendation somehow. So he's trying to, like, I, I, I need to prove that I'm a burglar. Well, now he's done it, right? I mean, he's rescued them all from the, from the, from the spy. He's now become, you know, he's this fighting dynamo against the spiders. Man, he's awesome. And then he's, talk about burgling. I mean, the elven king brags, no one escapes from my halls once the doors are closed, except Bilbo, who comes in and out as often as he likes. Right? Now, it doesn't do him any good because he doesn't know how to get around. You know, he still has to do the barrel thing because he doesn't know how to get from the front door through the woods to the, uh, to the river. But he is an excellent burglar. He's arrived. But what does he think about it? What is his attitude now as professional burglar? Kelly? He finds it boring to be burgling the same people in and out day after day. He says, I'm like a burglar that can't get away, but I must go on miserably burgling the same house day after day. Yeah, and he imagines it's as a kind of punishment. When, he's, when he sees them, the dwarves in the barrels being thrown down and then realizes, oh my goodness, I'm not in a barrel myself. He has this momentary horrible vision of himself stuck forever there burgling and burgling and burgling. He hates it. He gets really unhappy. You know, he, he, he's not... doesn't get a lot of job satisfaction out of burgling itself. Has a, gets a, gains a different kind of perspective on things, but doesn't really find great fulfillment in his burgling career. Of course, another way... Uh, another almost uh, almost as characteristically Tolkienian signal of his change, of that moment of change. The first one is the naming. Uh, the second is the singing. Um, he sings his, he does his first poetry ever right after this. Um, that is the song that he sings to the spiders, which Tolkien recognizes is not very good. The Adderkop song, um, though it though it does lead to my second favorite line in the entire book. Uh, no spider ever liked being called Adderkop, and Tom Noddy, of course, is insulting to anybody. Uh, 
it's my second favorite. My first favorite line in the book is when the, the trolls are rolling around in the ground, calling, calling each other uh, lots of, very, of perfectly true and applicable names. Uh, that, that's my very favorite line. But anyway, he sings for the first time. Bilbo will become, when we meet him again in the Fellowship of the Ring, he's going to be famous for his poetry. When he stands up to give his farewell speech at his big party in chapter one of the Fellowship of the Ring, all of the guests are going to roll their eyes and say, oh man, here comes Bilbo. He's going to be reciting poetry or singing a song pretty soon. They all expect it because it's Bilbo. Um, And when we meet Bilbo again later in the Fellowship of the Ring, we find that like it's all he does. He says, really all I like doing anymore is writing poetry. At the beginning, in chapter 1 of The Hobbit, we're told uh, in that passage where he is going off about Gandalf's fireworks and using all the flower imagery, um, the narrator tells us at that point that Bilbo is not quite so prosy as he likes to believe. But this is the first time we've seen him become actively poetical, actually sing a song. At the very end of the book, we will get another song from Bilbo, and it will be his great song, the famous song, the famous Road Goes Ever On and On song. Um, that he will sing. It's the last song of the book uh, in the final chapter. Um, And that, of course, will be a very important moment as Bilbo sort of takes his whole experiences and his whole perspective as he returns home finally uh, and and really kind of uh, digest and express that in verse. Um, But but this is a beginning. It's a modest beginning. Uh, You know, the the Adderkop song is not going to go platinum, but... It's his first effort. It's his first poetry. And that's, I think that's, that's, that's important. That's significant. Um, one, one question I want to ask, this is not just about today's reading, but looking back over the whole book to this point, um, it's something that has been coming up, but I haven't mentioned it yet because um, it's really only here in today's reading that we get a critical mass of this and it begins to become obviously significant. Tell me what things have happened by chance or luck in this book so far. There have been numerous quite remarkable strokes of good fortune that have occurred. Can you think of any, Tony? Uh, the riddle game, when he's he had the riddle about time, he's trying to say, give me more time, but he gets out. Yes, yes, he is saved by pure luck. Good, good. And I mean, twice, really, right? The second time, when by pure luck, when he's, he, he's not even trying to answer and accidentally gives the right answer, and the, we had the fish. Yeah, good, good. Elise? Um, more recently, when he decides... Good. Yeah, he's guessing uh, which direction the spiders took the dwarves and happens to guess the right way. Um, yeah, and you're right. This is not, this is something that the narrator draws our attention to. It's not just, oh, and, you know, like he's trying to just sort of make these things happen and hope we won't notice that it's pretty unlikely that that would have occurred. He draws our attention to how unlikely that is, but points out that. Bilbo was born with a fair share of luck and therefore chooses the right direction. Good, good. What else? Derek? We find the ring. Yeah, the finding of the ring, of course. An amazing stroke of luck. What else? Eric? When um, it's the, the wine is meant for the, the king and they drink it and they fall asleep. The, the chain of events which leads to the the, uh, the opportunity to free the dwarves. <clears throat> um, and again, the narrator draws our attention to that. Uh, luck of a peculiar sort was with Bilbo that evening, we are told. 
right? Um, it's one trend that we notice. Not only do more and more very lucky things happen, but the way that the narrator talks about it changes. The narrator brings it up more often. Till by the end of this time, luck begins to be one of... Bilbo talks about luck as one of his characteristics. Um, the dwarves say that he has... Are you found the passage? Yes, that he has some wits as well as luck and a magic ring, and all three are very useful possessions. Yeah, luck is a possession of Bilbo, see, in that. Yeah, that's exactly the passage I was thinking of. Um, and and that, happens, that happens more and more. Um, and Bilbo himself talks about it more and more. Good, what else? Other, th- other things from, from, from earlier in the story. Way back to the trolls... Back in Rivendell, our attention wasn't drawn to it as much, but there are some remarkably fortunate things. Well, it was pretty lucky that when they were in uh, Rivendell that the moon was out so that they could see the moon writing. Yeah. Elrond says that moon writing like that can only be read when it had to have been a crescent moon on Midsummer's Day. On Midsummer's Eve, rather. So only, you can only, those, those letters are only visible, what, like once every 28 years? Um, so it happens that on this night in the once every 28 years happens to be the night in w- when which they had happened to say, to, hey, Elrond, look at this map. And he's like, oh, look, there happen to be moon letters here. That's an amazing coincidence. I mean, even if they had given it to Elrond on a different day during their stay in Rivendell. It wouldn't have worked. So that's, a, that's a, an astonishing coincidence that they find the moon letters. And the, and the swords, which is the other thing that they're talking about with Elrond there. I mean, there are these trolls whom they meet and they go into the trolls' caves and these three random trolls happen to have possession of Turgon of Gondolin's sword? That's a little unlikely. But, you know, these, these had plundered other plunderers, and, you know, somehow it got there. How did they get the swords in the first place? The swords were in the, the, swords were in the, uh, the troll's cave, which was locked. Bilbo had the key. Where did he get it? It happened to fall out of Bill's pocket while they were fighting which is lucky, because had it not done when he turned into stone, they wouldn't have been able to get the key. That was fortunate, too. What else? I'm sorry if this was already mentioned, but there's like three riddles that... Yeah, yeah, that was mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Louise? That seems pretty lucky. They, they can't get across the magic stream and, and there happens to be a boat tied up there. Yeah? Yeah. And, and, and back prior to that, this, might, this one might not seem like good luck at first. This one is an interesting example of what seems like very extraordinary bad luck. The the little avalanche that takes them down the mountain? After that. Where do they end up? The wolves find them. They're running away from wolves, right? They're hearing wolves in the distance. 
And they're like, oh my gosh, wolves are getting closer. Let's climb some trees. They're at the meeting place of the wolves. It just so happens that the place they go to, well, not go to ground, the place they climb up trees happens to be, by strange chance, the exact rendezvous point of the goblin and wolf armies who happened to be planning to come to that place that night in order to attack the woodman down the hill. That's very unfortunate. They wouldn't even have been found by the wolves had that not happened. So this is a bad thing? So they're very unlucky. Because of this misfortune, this unusual piece of misfortune, this extraordinary piece of misfortune, what happens? What are the consequences of this piece of misfortune? Aaron? Well, the village doesn't get attacked. The village is saved. If it hadn't been for the fact that they, A, killed the great goblin, and B, show up here this night and distract them, the woodmen would have been attacked. And now the woodmen aren't going to be attacked. Why not? Okay, so the Great Goblin is killed, but presumably they'll get over that. Why, don't, why aren't they going to go and attack the woodman the next night? Or if they do, why will it turn out differently than it would have done this night? Josh? Bilbo and everyone else kind of serves as a distraction. And in the long run, it kind of gathers a common enemy. How? Good, how? Because the wolves and the goblins, of course come together, and that forces uh, better creatures to muster into, you know, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because they happen to be there, um, because of their presence there, they draw the attention of the eagles, and the eagles come and pick them up. So now the eagles know about what they're planning. Now, the eagles are no friends to the woodsmen. They hunt their sheep, Right? They won't even fly over where the woodsmen are because the woodsmen will shoot them with arrows, thinking that they're after their sheep. And normally, they would be right, says, says the Lord of the Eagles. Right? Um, but, but it's not just the eagles who find out about this. Bjorn finds out about this. And Bjorn is going to take some action. We will learn later that Bjorn is going to become the lord of this whole region. And he, you know, he go, remember, he goes to, the, to where the, the, to the, the glade, where the, the wolf glade, finds a goblin and a warg, convinces them somehow, and I don't like to imagine how, to tell him everything about what they were planning, and then kills them and brings back their, their pelt and their head uh, to his house. Um, and is plainly after this working to thwart their whole plan. He saves the woodman. And he's going to become their leader. In short, what we see is the entire destiny of this whole region is altered for the good by the fact that Bilbo and the dwarves and Gandalf happen to have been treed at that exact location that night. Had that not happened, the next day they would, the wolves and, go, and, and, and the, the, the wargs and, and goblins would have taken out the woodsman, and there would have been no people in that region. Instead, we are going to get a thriving human nation under the eventual rulership of Bjorn and his descendants. Tony? Sort of unrelated, but, you know, I mean, Tolkien was, he was a master of English, and I'm kind of wondering why 
he decided that every single creature on the planet speaks English. <laughs> Spiders especially, yeah. Um, it's funny, it's the kind of thing which, had that happened in the work of a different author, you would think, like, well, this person hasn't really thought too much about languages, right? Like that Bilbo overhears the spiders talking and the spiders happen to speak English. Um, but that's just obviously not true of Tolkien. That seems to be a way in which he's... Um, it seems to be a way in which he's accommodating things, I think, sort of simplifying things for a juvenile audience. There are still moments where you can see his... Uh, his philology peeking through. The wargs, for instance, speak in a foreign language. Is that what you're going to say, Brittany? Do you want to say anything else about their language? Only Gandalf can understand it. And what it's like. Their language is an evil language. Like when you hear the wargs talking, their, 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 their language sounded horrible, as if everything they talked about were, were about like horrible, wicked, violent things which it was, he, he, he confirms, right? Um, so the, the idea of a language which itself sounds intrinsically evil, uh, you know, that's that sort of Tolkien the philologist all over. But I agree, it's interesting. The spiders are the ones that are always sort of most surprising to me, um, that he depicts them as speaking in, uh, you know, the common language that everyone else is speaking But I think one of the things that we see there, he seems to use, remember the significance of language, not the multiplicity of language, but the significance of language um, back in the beginning of the Silmarillion, that is when the elves awake and name themselves the Quendi, those who speak with language. That was how they differentiated, essentially, sentient beings from non-sentient beings. Um, There are animals, and there are people who speak with language. Um, And I think... That seems to me to be the significance of language in The Hobbit. The spiders speak a language that Bilbo can understand, which shows they're not just animals. They're not just beasts. They are sentient. They are malevolent, but, but, but sentient creatures. Um, sentient is not quite conscious, perhaps, would be the better word for that. Um, all animals are sentient. Um, they, are, they, they have consciousness as well as sentience. Um, so... That seems to be, and, and the, the, it actually puts, puts the wargs in an interesting kind of subcategory. The wargs, therefore, seem sort of closer. They have their own language, but it's their own language. They don't, they don't speak normal human language, um, the same language that other people do, which seems, that, therefore, that they don't really kind of rise to the same level uh, as the others, as, of course, is appropriate to their actions. They respond like wolves. They're afraid of fire, and they're running around in circles, not sure what to do, and the goblins have to come and take charge of the situation, right? Um, it's not a full answer to the question, because I don't know the full answer to the question, but that, that clearly seems to me what language is kind of doing. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I don't have any good explanation for why the spiders speak that particular language. But Another... Well... Think of, um, okay, this is what happens when I want to say like 10 things in 45 seconds. Um, There's another series of misfortunes. If you look back at that whole story, their whole story, when they set out from Rivendell, the narrator makes a big deal to tell us there are lots of false paths and lots of things, but fortunately Gandalf and Elrond steered them on, they took the right path, 
to the right path through the mountains and get kidnapped by goblins, which nobody knew were there. You know, they had opened this new, this new entrance. So, gosh, unfortunately, though they were on the right road, they were waylaid, and then they, get, and they end up coming out, you know, through the back door in a totally different part, and Gandalf is like, I'm not quite sure where to go now. This is way far away from the place where I had intended to come out. If we'd crossed the mountains, we'd have been on this other road, and now, now we're not. So that really sucked, right? Except when they get to Bjorn, Bjorn tells them, Oh, yeah, turns out that pass you were on, yeah, that's a really bad idea. You know, nowadays, where that pass comes out, ooh, bad news. It's really, really lucky for you that you ended up where you did. And then they're going through Mirkwood, right? Because there's a path through Mirkwood, down by the pass where Gandalf was leading them, and he's like, oh, yeah, that pass doesn't work. Now, there's this other path through Mirkwood that you have to take. I'll show you the way the only true road through Mirkwood nowadays. And they're like, oh, phew, thanks very much. But, of course, they leave the pass, which, path which they're not supposed to do, and get kidnapped by the elves, and end up coming down the river. Which, again, the narrator says, now as it happens, the path that Bjorn had led them to uh, now tapers off and is no good anymore. Had they stayed on the path, they would have gotten lost. But, fortunately, coming through the river, they came through the only possible way on the, out the other side of Mirkwood. So, as it happens, they came uniquely in the only path they could possibly have gone to where they were going, but not by their own plan. In fact, always contrary to their own plan. So all of these horrible things, these terrible misfortunes or mistakes or errors that they make. I mean, they're not supposed to leave the... Don't leave the... Oh, you left the path. That was so dumb. Except it's the only thing that gets them to the other side, as it turns out. If you try to do something wrong. All who attempt to do something evil shall prove but mine instrument in the doing of greater things, more wonderful than they could possibly have imagined. Right? The plan of the elves, the, dwar- the goblins and the wargs backfires on them heavily that night. And instead of wiping out the humans, they end up, the events end up establishing a good human realm there. Um, All these misfortunes, which seem so unfortunate, turn out to be uniquely fortunate, actually. I mean, it's almost like someone has rigged this whole thing. And this whole thing is being arranged behind the scenes, isn't it? And then, of course, at the end of it, they come to the lake town where everyone is like, there are prophecies which say the kingdom of the mountain shall return. Gosh, it's almost like that, isn't it? Not even to speak of what happens on Durin's day up on the side of the mountain when the prophecy, because uh, they are not instructions, it is a prophecy uh, written in those extraordinarily unlikely moon letters uh, finally comes to pass, right? Okay, that's all for now, but come back next time for the last session on The Hobbit. I should mention that Washington College's spring break is next week, so for those of you following the class in real time, there will be a class-free week. We will come back on Monday, March 15th, and start the Fellowship of the Ring. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.